BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 40 of the Bowery Boys. It's Union Square. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. I'm Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And Tom, welcome back from your travels. How were your journeys? How was Europe? Oh, Europa was wonderful. It was a great uh, two weeks away. I, of course, missed the Bowery Boys, but I had a good time uh, checking out hotels for Euro Cheap. Oh, right, in, in Bruges. I was in, in Bruges, Brussels. right, and it was a lot of fun. I have to say, I took a train from Brussels to Bruges uh-huh. and listened to you oh. talk about Henry Ward Beecher. That was kind of both <laughs> surreal and comforting, Greg, wow, and informative. Great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was a fun podcast, but it's nice yeah. to have you here, and it was great to have a guest star last week, but great to have you here. I'm impressed by how much you know about the Yankees. I had no idea. Well, that's why I had, you know, can you imagine if I had done that myself? <laughs> it's good to have like someone there who knew a lot about the Yankees. But this week, we are focusing our attentions um, on downtown Manhattan, a place called Union Square. A park, a square, a, ga- a place with political significance. A gathering point. Um, and ha- we're going to start the Revolutionary War. We're going back there for a, a, a little bit. And it's going to take us all the way up to the 70s. And along the way, you'll find out the story behind the name Union Square, because it turns out there are a lot of conflicting stories about this. A lot of different theories abound as to why it's even called Union Square. For instance, is it called Union Square because of the labor unions and the park's significance and political rallies? Or is it called that because of a convergence of streets, a union of streets, if you will? Or was it called that because of the Union in the Civil War? Or is it named after young actress Gabrielle Union from the film Bring It On? All plausible (laughs) scenarios. Stay tuned. We're going to the square. All right. Well, we are so eager to dig into this one, and I am eager to remember how this works. Let's see. We... (laughs) We start up by situating the listener, is that it? We do indeed. Let me tell you how it's done, Tom. Show me. So Union Square Park, it's located at Broadway and what would be 4th Avenue. Because Bowery changes its name once it hits Astor Place and becomes 4th Avenue up to the square. 4th Avenue isn't really much of of a street. So anyway, and that's also between 14th and 17th streets. It sits atop a big transportation hub with many, many subway lines that run underneath it. Mm -hmm. The L4. Four, five, N, R, W. It seems like every train goes through every, Union Square. Every single train. So there's yeah. a there's a big open plaza in front where they usually have all sorts of gatherings. As a matter of fact, this past weekend I was there on the afternoon at 
two o'clock, there was a gigantic anti-war rally. Right. Up front, there was a Palestinian sort of support group uh, up near the South Park. Mm -hmm. Then there was a gigantic pillow fight with hundreds of people doing pillows. And then, of course, in the North part, there was the Green Market. And then everywhere else, there were like a a thousand different things going on. It's a bustling, bustling place. In other words, it was just another Saturday afternoon (laughs) in Union Park. Chaos. In Union Square. Wouldn't you say it's like the second craziest square next to Times Square in, in, uh, in Manhattan? I don't think I've ever relaxed at Union Square. You know, you can have picnics. There's a, I mean, there's a, during the spring and summer months, there's that nice little restaurant that you can go to. The park is run by the city, of course. You know, the neighborhoods that surround it, there's, uh, there's Gramercy Park, there's to the east, there's Chelsea to the west. Greenwich Village is south of there, and the Flatiron District runs north. So it is the sort of like the key to holding all those pieces together. Union Square has been around for 170 years, believe it or not, and has been a place for entertainment political labor rallies, all sorts of things with a little recreation thrown in. But back, let's way back, Tom, way, way back um, back. to the 1700s. It's British farmlands and it's outside the city. city. Right. The city didn't stretch up as far as Union Square. The city was all the way down at the base of Manhattan. As a matter of fact, to tie into the last podcast you and I did together, uh, Uh, George Washington, George Washington, when he came back to the city, after the Revolutionary War, on November 25th, 1783, he stood and looking down towards the city, and this is where the convergence of two roads were, and people came to gather, and he was met by these large victorious crowds at the intersection of these roads, and he was said to have made this gesture that we'll talk about in a little bit, but is sort of mimicked in a statue that's standing in Union Square right now. So that is in 1783... The area basically for a time then is just a potter's field. That's what's on this land at the beginning of the 18th century. And so when the 1820s roll around, mm-hmm. we have to remember that the city was going through this huge building boom that we've talked about before. The, mm-hmm. the population was doubling and, and actually quadrupling. I mean, from, what, 1820, there were 124,000 people in New York City, in Manhattan, Okay. 1835, 15 years later, there were 270,000. New York. Extraordinary. That's a double. It is a double. It is more. More. New York was the fastest growing city in the U.S., and developers were starting to build things taller. There was a new kind of speculative nature going on here. In tandem with this, the rich families were moving out of the southern parts of Manhattan and mm-hmm. up to the area that used to be, well, farmland, places where people would go on the weekend, Greenwich Village, so, and even a little bit further up than that. So these, uh, these, these farmland, it would be like, like Stuyvesant's farm was there, for instance, right? Right. All the big old families had these giant estates, which they could later develop and turn into, well, a, a pretty handsome profit. So was it like, I mean, John Jacob Astor, I'm assuming, was uh, was one of these people, one of right. these families? Astor, uh, Stuyvesant, Livingston, the Roosevelt's family, the Lennoxes, and others. They all own giant um, amounts of land north of the city. So we have this fairly unused farmland, though, in this particular area. Sure. So how does this, which is kind of nothing, become this... A sumptuous park. I mean, what happens next? Well, first, I think we need to turn our attentions to London. London? Do you mind? Um, <laughs> and we're going to answer my question? I guess. <laughs> okay. I'll go to London. <laughs> Thomas Cubitt. 
okay. was a developer for the city of London. He was, throughout the 1820s and 1830s, the man who was responsible for planning many of London's squares and pretty terraces, uh, which had really attracted lots of fancy home developments. Uh, Bloomsbury, Pimlico, Belgravia, these sort of gorgeous terraces and the areas, the fancy areas in London that are still beautiful to walk around today. He sort of set that urban development style in place and it was catching on elsewhere, and it caught the attention of a certain Samuel Bulkley Ruggles. Oh, the Ruggles is a name that I don't think we've actually come up with in a podcast, but is crucial to this period of time. He's one of the huge developers of city parks in this new, growing New York City. So this is the right. first time we're coming across his name, but we will mention him a lot later. We will. He was born in New Milford, Connecticut in 1800. He moved to New York uh, in 1821 to practice practice law, but he got married, he married well, to marry Rosalie Rathbone, who was plugged into New York society and gave him a lot of... Nepotism? <laughs> no, connections. She gave him a lot of connections, <laughs> okay, connections. to old New York society, the people who owned a lot of land. You know, he, he knew how to negotiate city contracts and things like that, and he predicted correctly, that mm -hmm. the property values in New York City were going to skyrocket because at this time, the railroad was just sort of coming into town oh. and beginning to tran transform New York mm -hmm. into a city where, well, all the goods being produced in New York could be shipped out to the rest of the country all of a sudden. So at least at the, in the 1820s and early 1830s, there was this great potential for New York to really explode into something big. Along with that came development, new housing, and, you know, smart developers like Ruggles. And so, yeah, he, he, so he was tapping into this, the new enthusiasm that the city was developing. And so it was, he was going to jump into that in terms of developing these, these unique places, spaces. Right. In 1831, he actually stopped practicing law altogether, and he used his wife's inheritance money uh, to start buying up land. He Remember how Astor said that he, if he had his life to live over again, he would have bought every yes. single piece of And I think I would have too. So, but that's what Ruggles does here a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he started buying the parcels, buying them together, buying um, great swaths of land. By 1833, okay, just two years after he stopped practicing law, he had collected and amassed 500 lots in this wow. area. And that and just in the what we consider downtown and midtown Manhattan? around what is today the Union Square okay. area because well one of the areas was between 19th and 22nd Street and between 3rd and 4th Avenue mm -hmm. where he developed Gramercy Park. Oh yes. He and even got the city to open up a piece of a road in between 3rd and 4th which they called Lexington. Oh, I mean, this man to get to so he could build this park. You're right. That interrupts the the boulevard. I guess. Right. Yes. And south of his park, he called it Irving Place, named after the great Washington. writer. Yes. Who never lived there, but I mean, <laughs> he was he was being honored. So this man, you can see, he was developing, and he had great power and connections. On April nineteenth, nineteen ninety five, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. 
take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. So... In 1832, to get to today's podcast, uh-huh. <laughs> Ruggles obtained a 50-year lease um, on most of the land at Union Place, okay. as you correctly called it before. Union Place. Right, that area between 15th and 19th Street. And he also convinced the city to open up the area north of the 17th Street for development because it had been held this whole time by the city. So that things could develop next to the park. Well, because the square needed to have a northern edge to it in order to be a square. Otherwise, it would be like an open (laughs) box. (laughs) Well, but and it certainly got developed in all the right ways, right? Well, in 1834, he convinced the city to enclose the square, level the land, grade it, turn it into a square... And which was a massive undertaking because, as you said, it was a big potter's field. So things really had to be leveled out. Bodies. Well, as we learned in Washington Square Park, too. I mean, it's another Uh story of a cemetery being converted into a a land. But it's not flat land. It's hilly. And so they need to even it out. And he also got the city to change the name to Union Square. Okay. And then he put in, you know, the sidewalks and curbs and sold off all the all the leases around it, and reserved one spot for him on the eastern side where he built a, a giant mansion. Knowing, I guess, for sh- knowing then that this was going to be an area to live, if he's, he's speculating himself right. that this is the place to be. Okay. Right, and he wanted to put himself there. He moved up from Bond Street, you know, all the way down on Bond Street. <laughs> so they name it, they rename it Union Square, mm-hmm. which brings up this question again, what the? What, what, what is what Union is Square? What is Union Square? Well, the reason that it's called Union Square, yes. Union Place, is it's not the name of the actress. Uh, it's, not the, it's not the labor unions, though we'll, we'll see those in a second. It's not named after the, the Union, as in the civil, the Union and the Confederacy, though that as will also... Was before the, yes, the Civil War. clearly, but this will come into play also. It's named because it is a convergence of streets. Now, here's the interesting thing. It's, it's a convergence... Convergence of Bloomingdale Street, which was the name of Broadway before it was Broadway's Bloomingdale Street, and what they call the Post Road, the Eastern Post Road, or Fourth Avenue, or Bowery Road. It went by a few right. names. Um, it's, this is where they converged, and when they laid out the map of Manhattan, this area is where all the streets converge. So it's the union of all those streets oh. right there. The park itself, is a, it was an oval shape. Like you said, it had these lush gardens, and it was surrounded by an iron fence for the longest time. And in the middle, um, that they actually built in 1842, was a giant fountain. 
that they put in the middle of the park, which is, of course, no longer there. And it was fed from the Croton Reservoir uptown that had just been built. And so this was like the most amazing thing to have water transferred uh, down to just be wasted in a fountain in the middle of the park. <laughs> so the city, of course, then grew up around the park. All these Tony residences like were built up, and this is really for the center of upper class New York in this period of time. You know, even Tammany Hall is built just a couple blocks away. The heart of Tammany Hall is and, right there. Right. So it's not just residences. I mean, there are political institutions. There were also some cultural institutions. The, the, the theater district, the early of the early New York theater district of the mid-19th century also springs up here. In 1854, the Academy of Music is built just a little bit down the, down the street on 14th. But then all these theaters come and they collect themselves. And o- over the next few decades, this will be the heart of the theater district. And the, and the theaters had been down by City Hall before. So this was really everybody moving up. And it the- seemed like leaving downtown for i guess the more hardcore businesses well they fo- well it follows the it follows the city basically right. you know as we know they follow themselves all the way up to 42nd street and stop in 1856 on mm-hmm. july 4th remember i was telling you about george washington how he's making a gesture sure and yeah. how that's really sort of the historical reason why there's a park there they decided to build a statue of George Washington on his horse, the equestrian statue. It was sculpted by um, a man named Henry K. Brown. The money was actually raised from gifts of all the people who lived around the park, and they all donated about $300, which was quite a lot of money for the time. And they ended up. Did they have to donate? They each had to give. I, I think it was an honor to donate. Are you kidding me? This, I mean, this statue, which was going to signify the the the, the day of evacuation, the, oh, the day of New York's freedom. Absolutely, you know? don't test my patriotism. But <laughs> I just wonder, three hundred dollars was a lot in eighteen fifty. That was a lot of money, but these were, these were the upper crust. Okay. So I guess they could do it in their Tony places, in their Tony residences. <laughs> yes, um, uh, but and it was a, it was a bronze work, but most of it was actually done in Paris because there weren't that many bronze foundries in the U.S. By the way, it was originally in the southeast corner of the park. We'll mention it a little bit later. All the statues got sort of like, kind of like moved around in a later redesign, but mm. it was in the southeast corner for a, for a time. So just a few years later, in April of 1861, Union Place Park is actually the scene of the biggest gathering of Americans ever up until this time. Wow. Um, this, the scene is uh, the fall of Fort Sumner. So that's the, really the beginning, the first rallying cries of the Civil War. 250,000 people, a quarter of a million people, gather in Union Square. Or gather, obviously they're not gathering. It's gathering squ- like, like blocks and blocks and blocks. It, yeah. I mean, it, because they're all rallying in support of the war. This is considered the largest public gathering of Americans. They had a lot, a list of speakers, which is funny because there's no microphone. So it's like, what are like only a small number of people are really hearing what's being heard, but they have lots of speakers. They have a lot of dignitaries like John Jacob Astor and Peter Cooper are there. The mayor of the city, of course, is giving a speech, but here's where it gets kind of curious. The mayor at the, t- at the time was this colorful and corrupt guy by the name of Fernando Wood. He was a tool of the Tammany Hall machine. Fernando Wood was 
for the Confederacy. He was not for the Union. He did not want to go to war. In fact, he wanted to secede from the Union with the South. He wanted to take Staten Island, Manhattan, Staten Island, and Long Island, collect them under one commonwealth, and call themselves Tri-Insula. <laughs> I, I know that's not a laugh line, <laughs> but that's just such an uncatchy name. No, but Tri-ins- could you imagine if... Had if if meaning had he had his way, we would be living in Triinsula, and I can't imagine that that would have been very. Well, we successful. may not have even been able to move to Triinsula. I mean, we, <laughs> no, we no, grew up been, in other parts of the country. Yeah, it would have been another country. Um, wow! But, but because of this huge outpouring, and because he was a savvy politician, he had to keep these anti-union sentiments under wrap. As a matter of fact, according to legend, as he mounted to the stage, there was a young boy that was sitting in a tree right next to the stage, and the boy shouted out to Fernando, Now, Nandy, mind what you say. You've got to stick to it this time. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how they know those anecdotes, but so he did stick to it. And as a matter of fact, later in his career, he would even be... Because, of course, he's a politician, uh, not really because he supported it. He would end up re- uh, recruiting Union troops. So he came – so Nandy came around. He, he did he – did, Nandy did come around, so to speak. Now, sadly, at the end of the Civil War, this would be a, another significant site with a large group of people because Lincoln's body would lie in state here at Union Square in 1865. And where he lay in state is now a statue of Abraham Lincoln that's also sculpted and designed by the same man who did the George Washington. Yeah. And by by Brown. By, by Henry Kirk Brown. By the way, I should mention there's another statue in the vicinity of the Marquis de Lafayette. And that statue is made by Bertoldi, who is best known, of course, for constructing the Statue of Liberty. So there are lots of monuments, right? So we have Washington, we have Lincoln, we have Lafayette. We would get the James Fountain in 1881. Uh-huh. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but we'd wind up with a Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi will be, will be popping up here in a little bit. But you mentioned Lincoln in 1865. Not soon after that, the park was redesigned. In fact, in 1871, there was a new plan hatched for Union Square. They just couldn't leave it alone, and they landed the best architects at the time— Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vaux, yes. landscape architects, uh-huh. to um, redo the entire park. And they did Central redo Park. Redo what they did. Yeah, they did Central Park, Prospect Park, Fort Greene, and now here they are redoing Union Square. They took out the fence, they planted bigger and fuller trees, and they widened the sidewalks. And importantly, they also built a reviewing stand and a grounds to better accompany the large crowds that were starting to gather for you know rallies and so such. now it's working with the crowds and not against the crowds the this park wow. is, yeah. those were the days you know it's like building parks to accommodate protest so in the late 1800s what we know as ladies mile then starts really developing in this neighborhood with all these huge department stores and retailers and it becomes the destination spot in manhattan or in the united states mm. for shopping as a matter of fact in 1870 tiffany and company will open their store on the southwest corner at 15 Union Square. It's condos, or will be condos now, but was the, the gigantic Tiffany store was there. But m- what I find most interesting is this was also the heart of the booksellers and publishing companies. They called it Book Row. And, it and went, they had also been downtown. I guess yeah. I'm, 
I'm sounding like a bore here, <laughs> but over and over we see these businesses relocating up. Yeah. You know. It stretched from Union Square down to Astor Place, and the street was lined. I mean, as a, a bookworm, this is the idea of this is perfectly heaven. It's like used bookstores, publishing houses, and you know we have a remnant of that today because you have the Strand Bookstore right. that's still there. There's a couple smaller bookstores, but most of that's pretty much vanished, unfortunately. Do you know, Tom, there was something very, very curious on the southwest corner of Union Square. A diesel store? Well, it's a diesel store now, but it was Dead Man's Curve. Curve, curve. (laughs) Yes, Dead Man's Curve. So by the 1880s, they had cable cars that were rushing up the avenues and mm. you know transporting people as we have buses today but they had these cable cars on the lines this because it was the union the convergence of streets this is where the cable car would curve to to meet up with another avenue well the conductors of these lines were told to go quickly over these curves because or else they would stall but so instead ah, so, so they didn't want to lose the grip or something yeah so, so they're they speeding to... yes exactly so they're speeding up but of course they're going at these super speeds and there's all these pedestrians ladies mile it's book row there's people right, shopping those ladies can't walk too quickly so i mean you had like you had a lot of deaths a lot of maiming a lot of accidents people hurling through the streets because of these cable cars and oh. so they actually ended up calling this dead man's curve. One of the things that Union Square is better known for is as a meeting place for labor organizations, for strikers. On Tuesday of September 5th, 1882, a group called the Knights of Labor, they were a very prominent labor organization at the time, they had a march to sort of honor the working man. But consider at this time that working conditions were terrible for most people in New York City. Mm. So this was a something that really needed to be addressed. And so they had 10,000 workers marching through the streets, and this was sort of the center point. They, they decided to make it an annual march, and they called it Labor Day. But it wasn't at this time a national movement. This was something organized in New York. Correct, but it was not a national movement. However, it eventually did. Now, it's sort of similar to what Europe has. You know, Europe has May Day. Right. But in the United States, they decided to make Labor Day a holiday in 1894, but it originated from this gathering at mm. Union Square. So, And it's because of this that much, much later in the history of Union Square that it's made a national landmark because of its significance at, for as the start of Labor Day and for the labor organizations. As I said, it's a center of protests and labor. As a matter of fact, offices of trade unions would be opening up around there, and a lot of workers' newspapers would also open here. There was even, in 1927, a huge rally. Do you remember from high school, the Sacco and Vanzetti trial? Of course, yeah, but uh, refresh me. <laughs> well, there were these Italian-born immigrants, and they happened to be strike organizers and anarchists. Mm-hmm. who They were charged with murders that they really didn't commit. They were basically being charged because of their beliefs and their ethnic background. They were charged with this murder anyway, even though someone else had confessed. So on the night of their death, there was a huge gathering, a memorial protest here at Union Square. At midnight when they they were executed, executed, um, according to the New York World, the crowd responded with a great sob. Women fainted 
in 15 or 20 places. Others, too overcome, dropped to the curb and buried their head in their hands. There's, you know, a lot of mourning, a lot of uh, suffering here. What's funny is this, you, you almost see this parallel then uh, after September 11th because this was a, a, a centerpiece also right. for a lot of grieving and a lot of mourning and memorials that were set up. The park is a place for people to gather, but not in 1928 to 1929 because the park was completely demolished. <laughs> yeah, sadly enough, it's it's completely destroyed. And why? Well, because they were building the subway lines underneath the park right then. They put in so many of those lines that we would be lost without today. And when they rebuilt the park, they straightened out some of... Olmsted's uh, curvy paths mm-hmm. and I guess we're thankful the for that. I guess. So in 1929, the park reopens and the area around it continues to be a hub for shopping. But it's decree. But it is going on the wane because, as you know, everything is moving uptown. Right and, by 1929. Well, of- by 1929, a lot of things are kind of yeah. So it's to me, it's significant that then the biggest retailer from basically the 30s to the 70s is this place called the Klein's Dress Store or Klein's on the Square as they called it and it was this man named Samuel Klein and he it was an ex- inexpensive women's clothing store it wasn't high class it was for bargain clothes it's funny you can go to Union Square now and there's a Filings Basement it's kind of the Filings Basement of mm. the mid 20th century it was open all the way up until 1975, when, of course, the neighborhood was so bad that even an inexpensive women's clothing store couldn't do any business there. That brings us well, up, I guess, to what? The 1970s? Well, I should mention really quickly, by the way, that one significant thing that happened in the neighborhood. So it's really going downhill, but so it's downhill enough so that Andy Warhol can move into town. So he moves the factory. Well, he 19- probably loved it. I well, mean, no, I mean, is... it was, so, you know, it was like, oh, it's trashy and it's, I'm going to be next to Klein's. So he moves the factory from its old location, which was a building that was going to be demolished, to 33 Union Square West. So that's where the factory was from 1968. But people try to improve the area uh, because it is a, a well-loved part of New York City. One of the first things that they do is call, was in, in 1960. 76 was called the Green Market, and there was an urban planner by the name of Benny Benapi, mm-hmm. and who devised a plan to have all these struggling upstate farmers. This is the mid 70s. So there are some struggling upstate farmers as a way to sell their own produce in, in the city, and they could only sell what they make themselves, what they produce themselves, and they put that in several places throughout the city, but one of the places they have it, and they still have it today, is in Union Square. And so that that tradition has originated since 1976. And did you know that the site of the present-day Green Market was the historic flower market from the old days? That's nah, great. Well, I read sp- that someplace. Well, they still sell flowers there. I, saw, I mean, like it's, so it's a, yeah. it's a grand tradition. But then... Luckily, then some new renovations happened later in the 80s. Right. Mayor Koch in 1985 uh, started some new renovations, including the uh, new plaza that you were talking about on the south Mm -hmm. side, usually filled with skateboarders and people talking on cell phones. Crazy people with People walking out of subways. (laughs) And they added a central lawn, you know, that you usually get chased out of. In 93, they added those playgrounds on the west side. As well as the restaurant, you know, 94 mm-hmm. opened up. There's a restaurant on the north side that's down by the pavilion. Yes. So throughout the 90s, new things were popping up. And in 1997, Union Square was, as you mentioned, designated a national historic landmark after um, its role in the labor movement. 
it's still such a historical place. And even for something that was pretty much demolished in the 30s, it still has this feeling of like reaching you're reaching all the way back to the 19th century because all that statuary is still around and they still have a sort of like a classical way of how things are structured in the park. And some of the older buildings are still intact around it, though on the southern side, you know, where the, there's now a virgin megastore and on the eastern side where there's a hospital well it feels a little generic but you do have theaters um on the east side right as a throwback to the tradition of theaters you do of course have a lot of shopping around and a throwback to the ladies mile era and as a perhaps homage if you will to book row there's that big gorgeous beautiful barnes and noble that's that's actually in a building that was an old publishing a magazine publishing company and in the center of it all we still have george washington Still pointing down Broadway, back to old New York. So there you have it. Thank you so much for joining us today as we take a trip back through the park. Um, we want to give out a couple shout-outs. The first is, I'm sure you all know the, the site, Forgotten New York. I'm sure you all have the book, if you don't. I mean, it's really if you don't, in- you should. You could pick it up at the Strand or at the Barnes & Noble <laughs> yes, on or Union any Square. Bookstore. The, um, it's an indispensable guide. It's a detective guide, basically, to finding all the nooks and crannies of, uh, of New York City. Anyway, so Kevin Walsh mentioned us in his blog, a nice write-up, and include a link on that, on that site. It's been very helpful for us, so we thank him. And Kevin updates his site throughout the week as well. I mean, he's oh, got yeah. just a treasure trove of information. On just that. places that you would never even heard, have never even heard of in New York City. I mean, it's it's wonderful. It's a wonderful place. And then also, it's not history related, but there's a podcast called Away with Words. It's done by Martha Burnett and Grant Barrett. Uh, Grant is my old editor from college, but they the, they have a podcast that's on basically. The history of words, like or what they call the romp through the English language, and check them out. You can also download them on iTunes. It's a wonderful show. They go about fifty minutes, and it's sort of in the same st- style as us, except they have callers calling in. Could you imagine oh. if we had that? <laughs> Maybe we should just call their podcast. We'll call their podcast. We'll just do like combine them together. And don't forget that Greg also updates our blog throughout the week i'd say almost every day i try to do it every day and most of the stuff is is relevant to the podcast of the week though sometimes whatever catches my so fancy. if you're really geeking out and you want a preview of what the next podcast is going to be about mm-hmm. that's where you go if we've already decided what the next podcast yeah, is we, about, you know we we know weeks in advance <laughs> sure um so but anyway check that out it's boweryboyspodcast.com and we'll have another great show next week and it's wonderful to be back here greg it's been a lot of fun yes can't well, wait for next week i know we have another great topic next week so everybody have a great new york week whether you live here or not see you next week Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America. 